If you would have asked me five years ago what the on-trend brewing thing would be in 2021, I never would have guessed that hard seltzer water would be so popular. Laugh all you want, but hard seltzer is a fantastic day drinker and likely isn't going anywhere in the near future. Imperial Yeast's new seasonal strain, W04 Paramount, can help brewers get the most out of their seltzer fermentations. A clean and aggressive fermenter, Paramount will produce an excellent seltzer with low fusel alcohols and it's produced in a gluten-free medium. If you've tried making seltzer with standard ale or lager strains, you know the struggle, and Imperial Yeast is here to help with W04 Paramount. Check it out at imperialyeast.com. Welcome to the Brew Lab. When yeast is pitched into sugary word, it enters a fairly hostile environment, rich with sugars providing a source of energy for rapid growth and replication of daughter cells, but those sugars also cause osmotic stress, and then it turns that sugar into CO2 and alcohol, which are also poisonous to the yeast. There are some things that we as brewers can do to help yeast adapt to a hostile environment, such as providing yeast with free amino nitrogen, commonly called FAN. I'm your host, Kay Job, and today I'm back in the lab with my co-host, Jordan Folks, as we apply the science from last week's episode about FAN with Dr. Glenn Fox. FAN is one of those things I've heard about for years and never really understood, and this podcast w- uh, brought me a little closer to understanding, but I think that today I still have some questions for you because it's a, a pretty complicated thing for a uh, home brewer like me. Oh, for, for sure, right? I mean, this is like, a, I, I don't know that it's like next level brewing, but it's definitely like, this is getting into the weeds, right? Like when you start getting in the weeds with water chemistry and like yeast nutrient and all that sort of stuff, this is where um, that kind of stuff becomes important. And as you heard from the episode, right? Um, with, with Glenn, there's still a whole lot that we don't know about fans. So, um, but it is like you mentioned, this was um, an episode that spawned out of conversations you and I have had on applying the science and conversations that I've had with brewers. And so people all understand that a fan um, exists and that it's important for yeast, but that's kind of where most people's understanding stops. So, you know, for yeast to fully complete fermentation, which is both that attenuation and maturation phase that we learned from John, uh, John Palmer, it really needs to have nutrients available. And fan is like that building block, um, you know. But uh, as we talked about with Glenn, you, you know, uh, yeast is is better able to adapt with its environment when it has fan, but having too much could be bad. So we needed to have all those conversations and talk about that. And Jordan, you and I are going to spend some time talking about that today. And also how to maintain fresh beer, because that's kind of what this whole thing is about, right? Stable, fresh beer that lasts a long time. Yeast needs nutrient to do that, but there's other things you can muck up a along the way. But first, if you're not already a patron of Brewlosophy, please consider becoming one. We really appreciate the support we get from our patrons. And as a reward, you get access to unpublished contributor recipes, discounts at yakimavalleyhops.com, and an invite to a monthly live Q&A session. Becoming a patron is easy. There's no obligation. You can cancel at any time. But if you're out there listening to this show and consuming all of the amazing content that we're producing through Brewlosophy, like the podcast, the Brewlosophy podcast, the Brewlosophy show, reading the experiments, short and shoddy, hop chronicles, brew it yourself and everything else over at brewlosophy.com. It really would help us out if you threw us a buck and uh, became a patron. So check that out at patreon.com slash brewlosophy. Another great way to support us, especially this time of the year, whenever we're doing our holiday shopping, is by using those links at brewlosophy.com slash support. That's right. It's that time of year again. We're making our holiday season purchases. And as you do that, start your shopping experience by using those links to our partners. They give us a small kickback if you purchase something through them, and it doesn't change your shopping experience. Every little bit helps, so please visit brewlosophy.com slash support to see if any of your holiday shopping vendors are listed. This week's feedback is brought to you by the dedicated crew at Haas who bred Sabro, a neo-Mexicanus subspecies growing wild in the mountains of New Mexico. Think you know Sabro? Think again. This monster of a hop is efficient when it comes to delivering big flavor. Use less green to save more green, if you know what I mean. And if you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain, try it in the Whirlpool. It's full of aroma and chemical compounds that last from the hot side to the final glass, even if you dry hop on top of it. Sabro is known for its incredible blend of coconut, tropical, and stone fruits with pronounced cream character with flavors of vanilla, cedar, dill, and even mint. Can't decide where to use it? No sweat. Sabro's available in all Haas hop formats to meet your brewing needs, from highly consistent Lupamax pellets to efficient incognito and traditional T90 pellets. Learn more about this awesome variety as well as other innovative products Haas has to offer at johnihaas.com. That's John, the letter I-H-A-A-S.com. All right. uh, Jordan actually has this week's feedback. Take it away, Jordan. 
Well, speaking of incognito, I had a uh, listener reach out asking about how I calculate IBUs when using the uh, John I. Haas incognito product. Um, and for those that aren't super familiar with it, but maybe before reading the uh, feedback, um, remember, this is a flowable product that's intended to be used in the Whirlpool. Um, and uh, it has some alpha acid associated with it. Um, I've also been messing around with it in the dip hop um, and really enjoying that as well. Um, so uh, Mark writes in to ask... Uh, Really enjoying listening to you talk in the podcast about new hot products. You inspired me to try Incognito in a NEPA soon, and I bought Citra and Centennial, though I plan to only use Citra in the NEPA. I use Brewfather, and as you know, it can calculate IBUs in the hop stand based on time, temp, and alpha acids. Since a 20-gram jar is roughly equivalent to 4 ounces of hops, and alpha acids are not listed for Incognito, I am unsure of the IBU contributions. As the IBUs are intended to be low... I would not want all 20 grams to throw off a contest-intended NEPA. I wrote Yakima Valley Hops about this and did not get a response. Do you have any suggestions on how to count incognito IBUs in a hop stand? So uh, thanks for the question, Mark. Um, this is a really good uh, question because they're, these things really do pack an alpha acid punch. And so um, I actually wrote back with him in, cor in, in correspondence. I found out that some of his jars had the alpha acid listed and others did not. So I do not know what's going on there if um, the older jars or the newer jars don't have it, but the, all the ones I've ever received do have alpha acid listed. And like a recent um, mosaic one had like 52, 53 alpha acids associated with it. So uh, I think that if you happen to get a jar that that's not listed, that's a reasonable guess. Maybe put 50 or 53 um, in your um, alpha acid uh you know, row, uh, field in brew father or your preferred brewing software. Um, and then, you know, just say it's 20 grams and then, you know, select that you're using a hop stand format. And then the time that you plan to, um, at the time you t plan to whirlpool it or whatever your approach is, uh, looking at a recipe that I have published on the website. If you look up mosaic cyclone, um, you can see me using the incognito in the whirlpool and the dip hop and the brew father, um, recipe that you can download will have the IBU contributions in there according to that, um, whirlpool method. And looking back in a five gallon batch, that was about predicted to be about 20 IBUs uh, from a Whirlpool stand. So um, pretty easy to uh, use your software there. And hopefully uh, future jars will always have the alpha acid on there. But I think that maybe 50 is a good rule of thumb if you happen to get a jar that's not uh, listing the alpha acid. Yeah, that's a pretty amazing question and, and something I hadn't ever really considered. I, I um, was just kind of assuming that incognito was like uh, alpha acid free, but that doesn't make any sense now that I think about that, right? Of course, it's going to have some alpha acids that that, that come along with it. Um, so interesting. Yeah, 53% or 50, 50 to 53% alpha acids. You know, I mean, I was while you were reading that feedback, I was just poking around on yakimavalleyhops.com and uh, the, the image that they have there of incognito is a bottle of incognito. It says, mosaic on it and it says alpha acids 52.85 percent so i think you're right in the ballpark um and uh yeah interesting um cool i didn't know that that um you needed to take into consideration those kinds of things whenever you're in the whirlpool yeah and when adding it to the dip hop i'm not counting any ibus maybe there's a little bit that you're getting there because you know you're adding an entire jar which in a, the five gallon format is giving you 20 ibus i'm adding it in just a few cups of wort that i'm you know mixing around and then adding that to the fermenter so ostensibly i'm getting a couple ibus there but i just am not willing or, or I, maybe we should send it off to a brew lab to uh you know analyze that but i just don't know what that would contribute so i'm not i'm just assuming effectively none from the dip hop application yeah that would be my guess too the dip hop is effectively not very much right because it's just the alpha acids all you're going to get are those auxiliary bittering compounds right the things like ice or like oxidized alpha acids and things like that 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 might be a little bit bitter but not um you're not getting the isomerization that you are from the whirlpool right the temperature change from the whirlpool is what's bringing in those additional um really bitter compounds iso alpha acids but interesting cool well hey mark thanks for the feedback and thanks jordan for reading this week's feedback all right after this short break we'll be back talking about free amino nitrogen
One of the biggest improvements to my brewing practices was the upgrade to stainless steel, and Delta Brewing Systems offer some of the lowest prices on high-quality stainless gear, like the Firm Tank, which holds 8 gallons or 30 liters of wort, comes with a domed lid to reduce the chances of a messy blow-off, and it can hold up to 4 PSI of pressure. Delta Brewing Systems also has their own line of brew kettles, as well as one of the lowest-priced all-in-one electric brew systems out there, and their prices are remarkably affordable. If you're in the market for legit stainless gear, that won't break the bank, you've got to check out deltabrewingsystems.com. We all know that designing recipes is really fun, and doing it well is so much easier with good software. We at Brewlosophy recently made the switch to Brewfather, and honestly, y'all, we could not be happier. Brewfather utilizes the latest technology to bring you the most robust cloud-based recipe design software that can be accessed anywhere, on your phone, tablet, desktop, and even offline. It also works seamlessly with numerous third-party devices to make it easier to monitor every step of your brew. I know change can be difficult, but trust me when I say you need to go to brewfather.app today to try it out for yourself. That's brewfather.app. Brewer's yeast is an incredible organism, not simply because of its ability to make beer, but from a cellular level for all the incredible things it's able to do to survive in a hostile environment without oxygen and swimming in a crazy amount of sugar and also ethanol and CO2 eventually. It's a pretty cool organism, right, Jordan? I mean, apparently it's relevant here, and it sounds like uh, it can do both good things and bad things, and so that's something I want to better understand. So maybe before we talk about its kind of application in the brew house, we can talk a little bit about more about what it is and where it comes from. So that's my first question to you, Kate, is where does fan come from? Yeah, and so this was a this was a big one and one that I wanted to talk extensively with Glenn about, and and so hopefully we we uh, we did that in the show a little bit. But obviously, it's coming mostly from malt, um, but also and surprising to me, one of the things I learned from Glenn is that it's also coming from other places like hops and like fermentation itself. Like yeast is actually gen- maybe potentially generating fan, although you know it, it was very true that the fan decreases over to, over um, the brewing process for a number of reasons. Um, so you. You know, the fan that you're starting with in the malt isn't going to make it all the way into your finished beer. So don't worry about that. But most of the fan is coming from malt. And that's, um, you know, one of the things that I've started to understand from mashing or not mashing. I'm sorry. Malting is that the whole purpose of malting is prepping the enzyme package or, you know, like or at least that's what I'm starting to think of malting as is like, let's get the barley ready to go prep the enzyme package, at least for base malts, right? Specialty malts that you're roasting or, you know, changing the color or kilning at higher temperatures and all that stuff. You don't really care about the enzymes as much in those. But for base malts, so like for pale malt, Pilsner, all those base malts, Vienna, those things are really to me about prepping that enzyme package. And in Enzymes are made up of proteins. Proteins are made up of amino acids, free amino nitrogen, amino acids. They're the building blocks of literally everything. So anyway, I hope that was kind of like clear a little bit like where fan comes from. But that was one of those things that I wanted to be sure that we touched on with Glenn. So as I understand it, there are various malts have various levels of fan. So uh, one thing I think we heard is that the level of modification influences level of fan. Um, and so I'd l- love for you to tell us which direction that goes. And also I'm curious if um, kilning amount affects fan, I- a.k.a. would the lightest Pilsner have more fan than the darkest roasted malt? Um, do crystal malts still have fan? Uh, can you talk a little bit about modification and kilning uh, you know, extremity as it relates to fan levels? Yeah, dang, this is a question I wish I had asked Glenn as well, too, right, uh, so that he could talk about it a little bit as well. But yes, modification, again, um, is a, a a measure of how much the malt have enzyme packages prepped, right? That's a, a simplified way of saying it. So if there's more enzyme package preparation, then that means there's more fan available. There's more free amino nitrogen. Because again, the, the malt itself is, during malting, that's part of the process. The malting is take or malt is taking... Um, um, amino acids and nitrate and and um, building them together into enzymes, breaking down those um, hordines and beta glucans and things like like Glenn's um, 
uh, analogy where he was talking about the building, right? Like a building is like you've got thousands of stories and thousands of rooms and you need to get inside the room, but all the doors are locked. There's no doors. You have to like dissolve the walls and get through all of the sheetrock and all that kind of stuff to get into each of the individual rooms. So all that stuff is modification, right? It's modifying all that stuff. It's getting it ready to go so that we have access to that sugary starch. So yeah, modification definitely influences fans. So if you see a highly modified malt like Pilsner, higher fan and kilning to that extent too is going to burn off um fan right it's going to burn off your enzymes it's going to burn off your proteins and it's going to burn off fan okay so we would expect a munich malt to have less fan than a lightly kilned pilsner malt yeah yeah i think so and you know and this is one of those things too i think glenn and i talked about it is fan is a number that that um, a lot of brewers are starting to look more intently at but it's not currently on a malt coa at least not that i can find they talk about like soluble protein right and total protein those are numbers that are kolbach index those are numbers that are on uh, malt coas and that's generally like the amount of protein so you can kind of like assume that if it's a high you know um total protein or high soluble protein that there's going to be high free amino nitrogen, but where do you even get this number from? Where do you even get the fan from? And and that was something um, that's difficult. And a lot of places aren't giving you this information, right? But um, if you're sending it in or you have the ability to do this fan testing, if you're a commercial brewer, then you can kind of use that number, right? Uh, with, with fan. Um, and it, you know, uh, sometimes you can get it from the malt supplier. Sometimes it'll be on the malt spec sheet. Um, but I, the malt spec sheets that I have, um, you know, just in my brewery from from malts that I've had for different lots, buying like a whole bag and then getting the lot number spec sheet, it's not on there. And I was kind of surprised by that. Um, so I don't know. You know, one of the things that Glenn said was that you need somewhere between 180 to 220 parts per million of fan, and importantly. You know, if if you well, let me back up. You need 180 to 220 parts per million of fan, but I don't know where to get that from. So I'm gonna have to reach out to Glenn and see like how am I supposed to get this fan number? Um, where do I get it from, and and how do I know what to do with it? Is it something I can calculate from protein, or where do I get that? Um, and and kind of go from there. But it's kind of an interesting thing, right? That that fan you know, is one of those terms that I feel like almost everybody's heard, but we're all kind of like poking around in the dark a little bit over it. So if modification influences fan, does that mean that modern malts have higher levels of fan than the malts of yesteryear? I think that's definitely true. And that was one of the things Glenn was saying, right, is when you do get a fan measurement, you know, the the fan is, 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 you know, let's say it's 200 or whatever. And so that fan is higher because it's higher protein content. One of the problems with the fan measurement is that roughly 25% of the uh, 25% more um, isn't even covered in the fan number that proline isn't even covered. So I think like, yeah, as we have more modified malts, we're getting more access to fan. And again, fan is a good thing or can be a good thing for yeast. I mean, yeast need this to be able to build those things that they need to to survive, right? They need to build their cell wall. They need to be able to build their membrane. They need to be able to build the actual machinery inside the cells. I mean, that's another big thing, right? That's what fan is. Everything, amino acids are the building blocks of everything, <laughs> like pretty much, right? If you think about like ribosomes, which is where if you remember back to high school, you know, um, how this works for, for cells, right? They have DNA, that DNA gets coded by mRNA mRNA takes that over to a ribosome and then creates proteins and the way it does is it reads mRNA and then it knows okay I need to make I need to take these alpha acids and put them in this order and that's all what the mRNA says puts the alpha acids in the right order and it makes whatever the the cell needs that's like the whole point of this so so the free amino nitrogen are the alpha acids that are available to make all of the things that the cells need the cell needs to make enzymes to um, alcohol dehydrogenase right they need to make that to make um, alcohol out of acetaldehyde. They need to make a whole bunch of enzymes to take sugar through the glycolysis process. They need a whole bunch of machinery and stuff like that to do it. And all of this is from free amino nitrogen. So the more access that the yeast has to free amino nitrogen, the less it needs to build or generate itself. So free amino nitrogen is a very good thing for a brewer. But back to the malt again, you know, yeah, I would certainly say like more modified malts are going to have more free amino nitrogen. And, you know, as Glenn was kind of pointing out, that could ultimately end up being a problem because too much fan 
can lead to um, flavor issues like this thing called Strecker aldehydes, which are off tasting um, aldehydes, like staling aldehydes, like staling flavors at the end of your beer. If there's too much fan around, you can have Strecker aldehydes formed and your beer can start to taste gross. You know, I think many years ago, five, eight years ago, I read an article in like Zymergy or something about a low or maybe even no fan malt that was being developed for probably big brewers that were really worried about um, uh, high levels of fan and and downstream staling. Uh, Have you ever heard of uh, a low fan malt? Um, that's actually the first I've heard of a low fan malt, but it kind of makes sense. You know, I mean, you know, Glenn was also talking about some of the ways that fan, you know, um, is involved in the rest of the brewing process, right? I mean, that there's there, you can have too much fan, right? And, um, I mean, I was also talking with uh, Campbell Morris. He was the head brewer at Freem. Um, he's been a guest on the show a couple of times and told me that he wants fan levels that are at 150 or lower, which is below what Glenn was saying. Glenn was saying 180 to 220. Right. So, yeah, I would think that there's definitely interest from brewers out there because one of the easiest ways to add fan. um, So I said fan comes naturally from malt. But another really easy way to add fan is yeast nutrient. (laughs) Right. And I think a lot of people out there are adding yeast nutrient either in their propagations or to their fermentation. So you're probably you're you may have enough fan coming from your malt itself, then you're adding more fan um, whenever you're adding yeast nutrient to your fermentation. So this whole idea of like, hey, fan may be something we should be paying more attention to than we have been in the past may have some legs to it. Okay, well, why don't we walk through the brewing process kind of in a chronological order and talk about the things that might alter fan along the way. So um, water, chemistry, any fan implications there? (laughs) <laughs> no, not not as far as I'm aware of. No fan in water, at least as I know. Okay, so we've heated our strike water. We've adjusted it with. Oh, what about pH? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. pH will determine which uh, which um, amino acids are present. It may not necessarily determine the total amount of fan. This was a key point that Glenn brought up, right? Um, pH once fan is in there, um, all um, well. Actually, this may not have. Well, yeah, yeah. This, this, um, this is a key point that, that that Glenn brought up as well. pH will affect the types of fan that are present, not the total amount of fan. It'll determine like what amino acids are actually active and able to be used. Okay, okay. So we've uh, adjusted our water strike water. You know, we've uh, brought enough acid in to make sure that we're hitting like a pH of five point four. And let's say we're starting with a protein rest. Um, would that have any sort of um, implication for fan production? Mm-hmm, absolutely. And and so the the key point of a protein rest is that it's it allows proteases to work. So those proteases that are breaking down those hordines and the beta glucans and uh, xylo uh, shoot I can't remember the name of them xylo thingies <laughs> we'll call those right now. Somebody can write in with feedback um, about what they're called. Um, arabinoxylans. There it is. Got it. Um, but all of those pieces of building material, right? The walls between the the different rooms. Those are all being broken down by proteases, and those proteases are making fan essentially, right? Uh, and so, yeah, a protein rest can make more fan. This is a big deal, and one of the things that that um, Glenn has done research on is that the different types of mashing regimes impact the amount of fan that you have in your beer because a protein rest is probably going to release more fan. An infusion mash has too high of a temperature for those proteases to work. So you're not going to get as much fan release, right? And as much like additional fan release during the mash. Like, let me back up, right? If you're doing a protein rest, like a step mash, you've got your malt that has a certain amount of fan that comes into it, right? The free amino nitrogen that comes into the wort. Some of that's soluble, some of it's not. The soluble stuff goes right into your wort, and into your beer, right? Ultimately into the boil and then downstream into the brewing process. That's But if you do a protein rest, that proteases are going to get more fan out of the malt, right? So you've got the amount of free amino nitrogen that comes in with the malt, then you're going to add more to that, and then that's going to go with the wort down into the brewing process. An infusion mash 
like most of us are doing is just one temperature, right? You're coming in at 150 Fahrenheit or like 60, 65 um, Celsius. And, and that's it. That's too high of a temperature for major fan synthesis to go to happen, but you're still getting some. So the mash itself also plays a huge role. So we've, we've now like walking our way through the brewing process, right? We've got malting plays a huge role before we ever get to the brew house. Mashing plays a huge role before we ever get to, you know, into the beer or fermentation. Then boiling, boiling concentrates the wort. And guess what? It concentrates the fan. But there's a big key here, though. The fan does drop out with trube, right? So it sticks to the trube and you can have a loss of fan. And in fact, you generally do have a lot of loss of fan from boiling, which likely is why a lot of people are then pitching yeast nutrient at fermentation, right? You're not going to lose all of your fan, but a lot of it's going to get taken out at Trube. And no, I don't know <laughs> how much gets taken out at Trube. There's so many of these questions that we need to have another um, another episode where we sort of maybe do a Q&A with Glenn, like listener submitted questions. Submit your questions about fan and then I'll ask them of Glenn. So I had a bit of a light bulb moment just there. So thinking about historic brewing practices, they were doing step mashes, maybe even decoctions, right? And they're doing these temperature rests. And what we've heard is that that was more necessary back in the day uh, due to lower levels of modification. But coincidentally, we also learned that lower levels of modification uh, are associated with lower levels of fan, an important yeast nutrient for a healthy fermentation, thus... uh, there, that is one more reason why, why you know, brewers of yesteryear needed the protein rest because their undermodified malts not only needed that to more efficiently make, you know, the OG they were looking for, but also to uh, effectively release the fan that their malt was relatively deficient in. Absolutely. And that, and that's a key here, right? Like that's been how many episodes now have we done, Jordan, where we've talked about like how, how it, it, you know, everybody's so focused on generating sugars during the mash, but there's so many other things that are going on there, right? We've talked about uh, like several episodes where it's like, wait a minute, it's more than just sugar production. In fact, sugar production is kind of like the, the part that we take for granted. And it's kind of the easy part, right? Like it's, like, it's kind of like the nuances in these other ways like fan. I mean, maybe one of the reasons why Freem Pills is so good is because their fan levels are so low. I mean, I don't know, right? Like maybe that's one of the pieces that just makes that beer so tasty. Well, and I would not be surprised if they're uh, not pitching yeast on a ton of troop. And so I was reading a BYO article recently on um, how to brew a Japanese rice lager, and they were interviewing, um, I think his name is Julian, the brewer at Beechwood, incredible beers that that guy's making. And in the article, he recommends dropping the trube before pitching your yeast, arguing that it will create a uh, better product downstream if you can pull it off. And uh, I, you know, we have definitely tested uh, trube and have found that it can actually make a difference. Um, and so... This is one thing that Beerstadt does as well. They make incredible lagers and they're, you know, settling and creating clear wort before pitching yeast. And I think with a lager fermentation, this kind of makes sense. If we're interested in shelf stability, uh, maybe we don't want um, too much fan in the, you know, fermenting wort. And so that's something I do is I like to rack off the true because, you know, in a all in one unit, you could easily have a gallon out of five that's true and this with using a hop spider and that's just protein or whatever that uh, breaks out of the boil so uh, it seems to me that there might be something there as it relates to settling and, and um, pitching on clear work yeah I, I, I it's really interesting right and you mentioned those uh, those protein or not protein the true the trube um, experiments and yeah we you know we didn't send off the trube in any of those experiments to get like fan tested, right? To know like how much fan is actually making it in. Like what's the fan content of one with just like totally troop and then what's the fan content of one that has no troop? I mean, that'd be pretty interesting, um, you know, to, to look at and to do. Um, and maybe we can do that at some point in the future. But yeah, I, I wonder, right? And I wonder maybe, again, we look at sort of these historical brewing practices and some of the things we can kind of say like, yeah, okay, racking to a secondary fermenter like John was talking about on beer maturation. Yeah, that's really not necessary. Um, anymore but maybe this protein rest was actually doing some things right like getting fan into the beer into the wort and then so that you can then getting maybe soluble 
fan into the wort so that whenever the protein break happens and protein drops out, you still have enough fan in your liquid wort that's going over into the fermenter, even though it's clear. It's really interesting. You know, and then other sources that fan comes in, again, hops. That was a big one that Glenn was talking about. I didn't realize that hops are actually adding fan and they're not, you know, they're not the main source of fan. Let's be clear. And and Glenn was also clear about that too, but they are adding fan. So we're sort of like, we're, we're adding fan in at like almost all these processes. If you're doing malting is getting fan. If you're doing a protein rest during the mash, you're, you're adding fan in. The boil is concentrating and getting your fan there. Then if you're adding yeast nutrients, you're adding it in at fermentation. It's like, holy moly. I mean, we think fan is going down through the brew process, but if we're doing and adding fan at all of these steps, what kind of fan are we putting in our beer? Um, and, you know, this was also, you mentioned the the Trube experiments, but I also remember like the yeast nutrient experiments that were done. And that was really, really interesting to me because I used to use yeast nutrient. Whenever I think, I think whenever I went to the homebrew shop the first time, I was like, hey, I want to brew beer. Yeah, I've done these. I've done like half a dozen Mr. Beer kits. I want to do it like, you know, like a like a real brewer. <laughs> I think I said, it was just like, whatever. Um, but I walked in and uh, the the guys were like, okay, here's what you need. You know, here's your iota four. Here's your fermentation. Say, you know, here's your, your malts. Here's your hops. Here's your yeast. And here's your yeast nutrient, right? It was like, it was like with it. And it was like, okay, here, you pitch your yeast nutrient whenever you pitch your yeast. Put it in there in the fermenter and then put your yeast right on top of it. And and I was like, okay, great. And I just did that for a number of years and didn't even think about it. And then Marshall published that experiment where he did yeast nutrient in a Schwartz beer. Um, and uh, it was not significant. you know. And I was like, wait a minute. That's like a lager. That's a Schwartz beer. Like, what do you mean I don't have to put yeast nutrient um, in in there? And and then the Trube experiments came out. And maybe that Trube experiment you know, is explained a little bit by fan. But um, this whole concept of having to add yeast nutrient, I mean – most commercial brewers are still doing this, like adding yeast nutrient, either in the boil or in fermentation. And, you know, I mean, is there something to this? Do we need to be adding yeast nutrient or is this overkill? Well, I think that the big thing here is that it may not be as necessary when you're using a fresh pitch straight from the pouch or straight from the you know container that the pro brewer uses because um, this was just propagated in a high nutrient environment. I mean, heck, the Y yeast uh, you know slap packs have a yeast nutrient pack in it that you activate before you pitch it in, right? And so it's such a ideal condition, the fresh pitch, that maybe it's not necessary. But, you know, I like to reuse yeast. It's a great cost-saving measure. Um, and I'm brewing so much that it's just easier than going to the store all the time. And so uh, I think it's really cheap insurance. And uh, this is something that we probably should test out after multiple generations. Uh, you know, at least what the science says is it does become necessary because you're no longer having this, you know, pitch that has all these nutrients like in solution anymore at that point. That's totally that's a fantastic point because that, that is like what the science says, right? I mean, we, we've seen as you're pitching and repitching yeast, yeast is losing nutrients. Like like one of the big ones it's not able to generate is zinc. And so, you know, I did those two experiments where I was looking at zinc in a Vienna and zinc in a Hellesbach. And I was using fresh pitches of L17 Harvest, and neither of them were significant, right? And then um, then you look at the olive oil one, too, that I did, where it's like, oh, yeah, pitch this olive oil. That's going to give, you know, fatty acids, which yeast need to make its cell membrane. And then I talk with Lance Shainer on, uh, you know, the the owner of um, of Omega Yeast Labs in episode 89, and he's like, yeah, that's, that's fine. You know, you can pitch olive oil, but olive oil is only one part of it. You still need oxygen for ergosterol synthesis. So you still need these other these other nutrients and i would absolutely think that after multiple rounds of pitching your yeast you're just depleting 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 the amount uh, of these nutrients oxygen being a big one zinc being a big one and maybe also free amino nitrogen right if you're constantly repitching the yeast maybe that free amino nitrogen is dropping 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 and yeast nutrient becomes way more important too yeah, and I've also heard that uh, if you have an old pouch of yeast, maybe add nutrient when using that because it could have depleted it sitting in the pouch for you know six months or whatever. Um, and a starter would probably be a an appropriate um, precaution there when using particularly old yeast. Uh, and also ox, ac- you know, f- 
real oxygenation as well when you're using really old yeast. But if it's fresh, it might not be as necessary. Um, and uh, also a fun trick, if you have a bunch of old yeast sitting around, you can use that as yeast nutrient. I've heard that if you have some old pitches like harvested yeast or old packs that you're not going to use, just add them the last you know 10 minutes of the boil and uh, there's your yeast nutrient. Yeah, yeah, all those all those little cells, all those cells are going to break apart and they're going to drop out the nitrogens, the amino nitrogens that are in there, the zinc, all that other stuff. That's a great idea. Throw that in the last 10 minutes of the boil. Um, well, again, the whole point of this fan conversation, right, of understanding what free amino nitrogen is, is to give yeast the ability to conduct a healthy fermentation and maturation. And that's all about keeping the beer fresh and making it taste wonderful. So we'll take a quick break and we're going to talk about some of our tips and tricks on making fresh, flavorful, wonderful, shelf-stable beer. The new Brewbuilt X2 Unitank Conical Fermenter is here and it's ready to take your brewing game to the next level. With the best interior finish, welded and polished ferrules, clear bottom chamber, pressurizable with body connect fittings, etc., Brewbuilt has managed to bring commercial level features into the homebrewing world at an unbeatable price. Now available with a professional grade glycol jacket, giving you a more sanitary environment and much greater cooling efficiency, say goodbye to clunky immersion coils with the game-changing jacketed X2. Visit morebeer.com to learn more. Are you a defense financial manager looking to invest in your career? Attend PDI, the Professional Development Institute in Phoenix, Arizona, May 29th to 31st. PDI is the premier annual training event for the DFM community. Register today at PDI2024.org. Early bird rates end April 30th. Achieving vigorous fermentation where yeast has access to sufficient nutrients like oxygen and free amino nitrogen is key to achieving long-term beer stability. So Jordan, what are some things that brewers should pay attention to to help their beer stay fresher longer? For me, it all comes down to oxygen. We really want to mitigate oxygen introduction at all parts of the brewing process, um, other than when we're pitching the yeast. That's the one time that it's okay to add it. So if there's one item or, you know, uh, single issue that I would want to pay attention to, it'd be oxygen. That's a, that's a great comment, right? And I think that's a key here, right, is we keep perspective. We talk about fan and we talk about, you know, stability issues for having too much or too little fan, but we're on the margins here, right? If you oxygenate your beer, it's toast, <laughs> right? When your beer's done fermentation, f- fermenting, if you expose it to a whole b- a lot of oxygen, it's just not going to stay fresh and stable for a long time. It doesn't matter how much fan <laughs> is, is in there, right? Um, and, and so I think one of the keys here, and that's why we wanted to spend some time and talk about it on this segment is making sure that your beer is good in other aspects right we can talk about fan and reducing fan levels and figuring out you know whether to add yeast nutrient and not and all that sort of stuff but if you're not doing the other things to keep your beer fresh it's just not going to stay stable so yeah I, I know um you were kind of a fan uh, or at least have done um or have some experience with lodo brewing right like low dissolved oxygen actually what does lodo even stand for yeah i think that was right low dissolved oxygen yeah. Yeah. So low dissolved oxygen. You have some experience using those kind of methods, right? Especially for loggers. Right. Yeah. So um, the Lodo theory or, or LOB, low oxygen brewing, um, is that it's important to reduce hot side aeration, which is one of the biggest boogeymans in home brewing. Um, and, you know, the, the theory is that the German brewers are very mindful of um, HSA and uh, try to achieve Lodo on the hot side. And uh, in theory, you're redu- if you're able to keep oxygen in check during the mashing, uh, boiling, etc. process, you're preventing the staling of fresh malt compounds during the hot side, uh, which uh, is argued could A, make a more... Um, beautiful tasting beer a more or more potent malt character but also uh, is argued to have some sort of um, staling implication in that your beer will taste fresher longer if you can prevent oxidation on the on the hot side and i think that this is a fairly testable uh, theory in the sense of if you have um, a mash and you oxidize the heck out of it you will see it start to turn color now, does that actually taste different is obviously the question, um, but it is observable that um, 
oxidation of the mash has a darkening effect on the color in a pale, you know, mash. So uh, with the low oxygen approach, we're trying to mitigate oxygen exposure at every step of the way. And it, it's a lot of work. Um, and I admittedly don't do it that much anymore because it's so much work because it's things like <laughs> conditioning your grain. So wet milling, um, under letting. So you're not pouring in malt into water from the top, uh, pre-boiling or uh, yeast oxygen scavenging, which is uh, like a mini fermentation in your strike water to scrub it of any oxygen before you underlet it. Um, not pumping or minimal pumping. Um, well, it, well, hold on. Let's let, like tell me about some of these things. Like, because one of the things that I've always wondered, or one of the reasons why I haven't done any low dough brewing up to this point, is like I don't know how to keep oxygen out of my mash tun. How am I supposed to keep? My, I like I don't have a pressurized mash tun. Right, and they make them. <laughs> um, yeah, right. But yeah, so uh, first you want to scrub any oxygen from your water. Pre-boiling is the easiest in terms of the theory, but then you have to chill it down, and so that that's kind of annoying, right? So uh, the yeast oxygen scavenging method, which I do have an article on the website about, um, you're adding about a two gram. I'm going from memory here, about two grams of sugar and about two grams of baker's yeast per gallon of water. And um, after about 20 minutes, they've found that that is uh, scrubbed off most, most of the oxygen. You're doing that at room temp. Then you raise that up. Um, and if you're going all the way out, you're then underletting. So you're transferring that slowly from vessel A to vessel B, which already has your grains in it. And then a little minim- minimal amount of stirring so that uh, you're introducing less, ox- less oxygen this way. And um, you're probably flushing your pipes and stuff before pushing thing anything over as well. So uh, you said with, underletting. So does that mean like literally putting it in from the bottom of the mash tun? Right. So like you maybe do your yeast oxygen scavenging or pre-boiling in your boil kettle and then uh, either gravity or, you know, s- slow pump it over so that the water comes in from the bottom to, to fill the mash tun. Right. So, in addition, they're also adding chemicals. And this is the one thing I do do. Uh, and there has been evidence that this has a shelf stability effect. Um, and so the trifecta has been talked about. Um, that's ascorbic acid, brutan B, and SMB, uh, sodium metabisulfite. Um, my buddy that's really into Lodo, that makes really good Lodo beers here in Portland, he says that they're kind of moving away from ascorbic acid right now in that community because it may even have some sort of uh, reverse unintentional oxidation impact actually. So uh, maybe the jury's a little out on ascorbic acid, but you're adding these chemicals, which then serve to scrub oxygen from the mash during the mashing process. Because even though we've in theory eliminated all or most uh, with these pre strike water treatment methods, you're then introducing more during the mash. And so a mash cap is another popular thing to use at this time. And that could be a um, dedicated disc that floats on your mash. Um, You could use saran wrap or something like that, but you're trying to mitigate the amount of oxygen that sits on top of the mash as well. So by doing these methods, you're preventing or mitigating the oxidation of the mash, which they're saying has a long-term benefit in terms of shelf stability and also just kind of like the veracity of the malt flavor. Yeah. Interesting. So like this stuff like blows my mind a little bit too, because I, I, I've never really had any, um, I've never really tried to control any oxygen exposure on the front end, right? And like thinking about like underletting, you know, filling the mash tun from the bottom or, you know, de-aerating your your water, right, by boiling it or fermenting it. <laughs> I mean, essentially, right? Like you're you're uh, creating sugar, adding sugar and yeast to it and then essentially using that to scrub out all the oxygen that's inside your water before you're using it for mashing. I mean, that seems like a lot. But, you know, there is, like you said, there there is science that supports this hot side 
side um, aeration. Um, and I, I had Mengete Zwane, um, which is who's from South Africa. It was one of the, I don't know, earlier episodes where we talked about these radicals, free radicals that are generated um, during the mash and during the boil from oxidation. And that those free radicals stick around all the way in your beer and they accelerate staling reactions. Um, so there is science that supports that, which is just um, really surprising and really shocking to me. And Brutan B is another one of those that I haven't played around with. I have played around with, of course, you know, metabisulfites and ascorbic acid, uh, especially at the end, right, of fermentation, adding those as part of like kegging or packaging or something, but I haven't ever really added them up front. That might be something I want to test soon, adding a metabisulfite or something to the mash. Yeah, I mean, it's really easy. The thing you got to worry about on the sodium metabisulfites is um, they add sulfur compounds, right? And so if you add more than needs to be scrubbed, you'll have extra sulfur in your beer. So make sure that you're not adding too much there. Um, but we're adding in a five-gallon batch, you know, a gram of this stuff at a time or a couple grams. Um, Brutan B uh, has a couple benefits. One is it helps with wort clarity. Um, and then they're saying that it also ultimately has downstream implications for uh, improving shelf stability. Uh, I, I will say that um, at least when it comes to full-blown Lodo, when we're trying to preserve malt character, um, we're talking the final 2% here. You know, If you don't do this, it's not like your lager is garbage. It's just like this really, it's like extra credit, right? Like if you really want to push it to the max, um, this is that kind of final lever to turn. Well, yeah, I mean, brewing on the margins, though, I mean, that there was a uh, there was some book that was written about this back in the early 2000s or maybe late 90s. It was talking about like winning on the margins or some something like that. It was one of those, you know, kitschy titles. Um, but anyway, uh, the, the whole point was that on the margins is where you go from good to great or from like great to excellent. Right. So thinking about these kinds of things, thinking about fan or, you know, and thinking about on the margins, how you're like, you know, scrubbing oxygen. That's how you go from bring good beer to great beer. But interestingly, so while you were uh, talking about that, I, I looked up Brutan B and this is literally what it says on the Y Yeast website about Brutan B. It says the gallotannins in Brutan B react with wort proteins through adsorption and precipitation. The Brutan B protein, com- protein complex is left in the spent grains when Brutan B is added to the mash or removed in the whirlpool when it's added to the boiler. It's highly effective at coagulating and flocculating proline, thiol-containing proteins, but does not interact with foam-positive proteins. This inhibits downstream lipid and protein oxidation, which is the problem with fan, right? Improving flavor stability and shelf life. So it sounds like Brutan B um, is taking fan out of the wort, right? I mean, because those are the issues that, that you have ultimately down the down the road um, is like lipid and protein oxidation. That's where fan becomes a problem. Right. And <clears throat> it makes me wonder if one of the reasons I have so much uh, trube at the bottom of my boil kettle is because I'm using Brutan B and that it's precipitating more out that if I didn't use it, it would be more, you know, distributed in solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's dropping out and, and take maybe taking a whole bunch of fan with it. Interesting. Okay. So, so um, that's like, so that's some hot side stuff that we can do to avoid oxidation. And again, remember that the whole point of this stuff is to make the beer last longer. So like after the beer is even done, but we're thinking about these things on day one, whenever the beer is just fermenting. Um, so, all right. What about then uh, cold side? So once you're done, or maybe are there anything else that you do hot side to, to avoid, um, you know, oxidation before we move on? Uh, they say a light, like simmer, like a really light rolling boil uh, is one way because that, I guess, a vigorous boil could actually bring some in. Um, I, I not have not experimented with that uh, in terms of a side by side, but yeah. So pretty much uh, that's the gist of it. Is I think the the, the bulk of the intentions on the mash and um, the, the the strike water that you know mashes it. Yeah, yeah. And and of course, I mean, cold side, then if we move on in that way, right, cold side meaning everything that happens after the whirlpool, right? So once the wort is in the fermenter, and then even before fermentation starts, but, you know, from fermentation on. Now, a, a key point here, too, that's where cold side is defined, but it is very okay to oxygenate your wort. Even Lodo brewers are oxygenating their beer in the fermenter, right? Or their wort in the fermenter. Right. And so I think that with fresh pitches of yeast, the amount of oxygen that you're exposing it via racking, splashing, um, you know, et cetera, 
is probably going to most of the time be sufficient for a standard strength beer. I always add pure oxygen, um, maybe other than a Hefeweizen, which that's one of the tricks they say is don't oxygenate a Hefeweizen. Um, I always add it because why not? I have the little stick. It's so easy to add. And, um, you know, for, especially for lagers or bigger beers, I would prefer the insurance that it offers. Um, but yeah, so oxygenate your beer, um, especially if you're repitching, uh, because like we talked about earlier, you've run out of nutrients in the pitch. Um, and then, but after you've, you know, pitched that yeast and closed that lid or put on your airlock or whatever it is, you do not want any oxygen touching this beer whatsoever, other than it coming out of the draft and, you know, in your glass. Yeah, exactly. And, and to be fair, it is pretty impossible to eliminate all oxygen, right? Uh, but that's the goal, right? That would be the ideal. That's why it's called low oxygen dissolved oxygen, not no oxygen dissolved oxygen, because I don't think it's really possible to get all the way down there um, to, to, to those levels. But cold side oxidation, you know, I mentioned earlier the brulosophy experiments about yeast nutrient, right? And how we've done zinc and how we've done olive oil and how we've done uh, you know, uh, yeast nutrients themselves, all those were not significant. But on the flip side, almost all of the cold side oxidation experiments have been significant. I mean, it's been crazy. Like, I, you know, those are those ones are incredibly significant so often. I mean, I'll never forget the New England IPA I did with sodium metabisulfites. I mean, that thing turned purple in a week and it was totally undrinkable. Um, you know, like it lost all of its hop character. It started tasting like wet paper. It was really undrinkable when exposed to, to oxygen. You know, and so I think those are really, really, really important uh, parts of this. So what are you doing to minimize cold side oxidation? So I don't use a lot of chemicals, really, because um, there are some opportunities with chemicals. Uh, the things I mentioned earlier, um, ascorbic acid and um, SMB, some people are adding those at kegging or bottling to um, scrub any oxygen that may happen uh, during the packaging process. I don't mess around with that. The the couple times that I've used um, SMB, I had sulfur um, in the in the the served product more so than you would want otherwise. And um, so I'm just trying to mitigate it kind of mechanically. So I'm fermenting in kegs, which are really good low cold oxygen uh, vessel because they have a beer out and a gas in post. So I'm once my beer is wort is pitched, I will actually uh, use a CO2 tank to seal the lid of the keg and then attach uh, a homemade blow-off tube, which is simply a ga gray gas QD attached to um, some like beer vinyl or whatever that goes into a jar of um, sanitizer liquid because you want to make sure that your keg's post is sealed, right? And I've had before I started doing that, I had a couple times where I didn't notice any bubbles coming through, and it's because I didn't properly seal the keg in the first place. So uh, this is fermenting, you know, in a sealed environment, and then once the bubbles stop, I'll pull that QD off, and then it's, you know, there's a CO2 blanket ostensibly above it, and I'm able to get that beer out of the fermenting keg into the serving keg or into bottles or whatever it is um, in a closed transfer format. So that would be my number one recommendation to home brewers is if you want to up your game is mitigating cold side oxidation. And, you know, I'm sorry, it's just not going to be possible to really do that with buckets or carboys. There, there is one um, reasonable solution on the carboy side is they make this, um, I don't even know what you call it, but it's like a CO2 uh, forced racking cane. So you have this like orange, they're orange tops with like two holes and you put your metal racking cane in one and then you screw on CO2 on the other and you can actually push beer out with CO2. You still have to open, take your airlock off and your bung off and you put it in and so purge it a couple times. Before I was fermenting kegs, that's how I would do it and it's a really good entry level into low oxygen cold side. But I mean, if you're kegging your beer, just use another keg. And so uh, a floating dip tube or a cut dip tube is one thing I would recommend there. So you're not just like pulling a gallon of yeast when you transfer off. 
that was one thing I was going to ma- mention too, right? You had to make some modifications to your kegs dip tube in order to ferment because you're not, if, if you didn't, especially if you're like dry hopping or something, um, you know, in your keg, I mean, you're going to have like at least, you know, a couple of inches of muck and that dry hops, I know from experience, are not going to make it through your keg dip tube <laughs> um, to, to, to get out, right? There's nothing that's more frustrating for me than if I try to push um, some hoppy beer out of a keg and it's just hot gums up my my quick disconnect or my dip, my dip tube yeah and obviously they sell fancy pants fermenters a lot of my friends have them i find them too much to fuss with i don't want to clean a, mil- a bazillion parts that are connected with like tri clamps or whatever um i really like the cleanliness and the ease of using kegs and i don't keep a keg is a keg it, you know like the same keg for one beer might be used to ferment and the next beer might be used to serve and so i don't like have to keep track of all these different equipment. It's very universal in that regard. Uh, but of course there are super beautiful, fancy stainless steel options out there for those that want to spend the money and have, uh, you know, the, it's a pretty beautiful product and I, I appreciate those. They're more than I want to deal with, but they have ways in which you can do close transfers with pressure. Um, and so there are purpose built products that you don't have to use a keg if you're not into that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was going to say I'm still fermenting in buckets. And uh, yeah, I I made some modifications to my buckets to lightly pressurize the buckets um, because you don't need a lot of pressure to to pressure transfer. You you only need like one to two PSI. I mean, that's not a lot that, you know, that that's that's very, very, very little pressure uh, to actually be able to push the liquid um, out of the fermenter and over into the keg whenever you're closed transferring, Um, you know, but I did make some modifications to my buckets to um i i've never really worried about like oxygen getting back into the bucket because i generally once i'm ready to dry hop if i'm dry hopping or not i'll just connect the um the the i have a tri clamp that connects uh, uh over to my co2 right so i just literally have a, a hose at the top there um and i can just switch it over to the co2 connection and then you know bust burst a little uh, carbon dioxide in there if i have to take the tri clamp off or anything burst a little bit of carbon dioxide and let it sit at one to two psi until the fermentation is finished right so i'm even if i'm doing dry hops or if i'm adding nutrients or finings or any of those things and by nutrients i mean um smb or kms like um potassium metabisulfite sodium metabisulfite or sorbic acid whenever i add those i'm going to add those directly to the fermenter I'm not I'm I'm not generally not adding them into the keg anymore although that's okay. And one of the reasons why Jordan is that sulfur um component that you've been talking about. A lot of people talked about that and I realized I've never really getting that in my kegs because for the most part I'm adding that stuff in the fermenter. Um and and then I realized like, oh, well of course, it's blowing off in the fermenter in the fermenter before I actually transfer it over to the keg. Um but again, Sulfur is one of those things that's really easy to deal with. You just need to burp your keg a bunch uh, several times. And it's, you know, it's kind of fussy, right? If you if you do get that sulfur aroma from the metabisulfites, you may have to burp your keg many times, right, to get the sulfur out. But it's just one of those things um, to think about doing. But closed transferring, right? This is like a big key this, that we're talking about. You're talking about fermenting in kegs, right, so that you can have ease of closed transfer. But the whole point there is closed transferring the word. I think that's one of the biggest um, upgrades that I made to my brewing process is making sure that I wasn't exposing my beer to oxygen during transfer. So uh, a couple clarifications there. You said buckets. I'm assuming you have metal buckets, yeah, stain, right? Stainless right. steel buckets. Yeah. You can't do that on a plastic one um, or not that I've seen. Uh, and so that's one thing to keep in mind there. Uh, there are buckets available. That's right. And a plastic one is going to ingress oxygen anyway, right? Oxygen's going to come in through the plastic. You're not going to be able to keep it out. Stainless steel, at least, there's not going to be oxygen ingress through the steel. Um, but the, a plastic bucket, you're going to have oxygen ingress. But, but Kate, I'm curious, how are you mitigating oxygen um, ingress on the receiving keg with this one PSI push? Are you attaching a blow-off tube or are you just opening the uh, poppet at the top and assuming nothing's falling back in? 
Yeah, so it's positive pressure, right? So I am opening the pos- the poppet at the top. So it's positive. And I fill the keg up all the way with sanitizer. I think like you do. You do this too. I think it's Marshall's, Marshall's original idea, but it's one that I think most of us at Brewlosophy have adopted because it's really easy. Um, so I fill the keg all the way up with sanitizer. And I mean all the way up. I fill it all the way with sanitizer. Touching the lid and I put the lid on so that there's sanitizer touching the bottom of the lid. And then I use gas to push all of that sanitizer out of the keg right and so then the keg is uh, like pressurized with co2 so i depress the gas poppet and either attach a blow off or or don't but depress the gas poppet and while the gas pressure is blowing off that's when i let the wort start running in under pressure from the fermenter so it's like essentially the wort is running in right as the gas is blowing off and you can feel it if you put your hand like right next to the poppet you won't be able to hear it but you can feel it like blowing the hairs on the back of your hand you can feel it blowing off so there shouldn't be anything coming back in from that poppet because of that positive pressure in theory <laughs> and you you said wort several times i think you meant beer um i did yeah but uh so i'm that uh neurotic about this is that i actually have a uh um kegland uh spunding valve that i attach and i uh change the psi to be below the pushing psi so that uh it's a it's like a a one-way valve so that it, if the CO2 ran out, for example, not, it can't suck air in. And I had um, a couple beers. I was just doing that poppet method. And like, I was like, God, this feels a little oxidized. <laughs> and once I started using the, um, the, uh, the, the spunning valve, I haven't had that problem. So I, you know, I've got the tool. I might as well use it. I don't want any risk of some oxygen getting in in the receiving keg. Yeah, yeah, for sure, right? Uh, right. We definitely don't want oxygen coming in. But again, I I don't think I've ever had any problems with oxidation um, on those beers from that part, right? I, I think there's other parts of the brewing process where oxidation might come in. But I do like the fermenting in kegs way. I also like the space saving of fermenting in kegs, right? Because like buckets and, and are are round and wide. And I have a tall enough, you know, my, my fermenter is a freezer, a converted freezer. It's tall enough to hold kegs in there. Um, you know, so it would save a lot of space. I could ferment more. But that would mean I'd have to brew more too, which would be tricky. <laughs> um, but okay, so uh, I chemicals I do use. We talked about chemicals already earlier, and I think we've mentioned those. But I do use... you mentioned that you're doing more mechanical and not as much of the chemical these days but i am definitely using chemicals um in each of each of my batches it's definitely it's going to be a small amount of sodium metabisulfite like something like like um, a 0.3 grams in a five gallon batch and then a little bit of ascorbic acid to sort of around that same amount um going into the keg and for my money that's been the best insurance that i've had against oxidation now it's been a very 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 long time since i've bottle conditioned a beer but hey bottle conditioning turns out is actually another really good way to preserve your beer yeah and in fact if you're using a a plastic bucket and you're using an old school racking cane i would actually recommend bottling at that point the uh, amount of you know, oxygen scrubbing forgiveness that you get from a re-fermentation in the bottle, it works wonders. And um, for example, you know, when I'm making sour beers and stuff, I'm not doing everything under pressure. Um, I'm not using closed transfer systems because I don't want two, you know, sets of everything. So I just kind of use an old school racking cane, but I'm bottle conditioning it with sugar. And, um, you know, these beers are not coming out super oxidized. And so I think that bottle conditioning is a really good trick. If you don't have all the other, you know, fancy, you know, tools at, at your, uh, you know, in your garage or whatever. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, I mean, bottle conditioning is harder, right? It's harder than kegging, in my opinion. You've got to clean all the bottles. You've got to have all the bottles. Then you have to, you know, uh, get them all sanitized and ready to go and all that sort of stuff. Figure out what kind of how much sugar you're going to add, what kind of sugar, how much yeast you're going to add, all of these other additional considerations that you don't really need to have um, with kegs. But it can still be a good way to preserve beer. And you can see how crazy I am with this stuff when I tell you how I bottle condition my clean beers. So I'm a big believer that Belgian beers and German Hefeweizen uh, deserves to be in a bottle. You know, the amount of CO2 you can get in a bottle, you can't rival that on a, on a draft system, not realistically, right? I want three and a half volumes for these beers, and I'm not going to try to serve that uh, on my draft system. And Belgian brewers, Hefeweizen brewers, they their kegs that they send out in the market have less CO2 in them 
uh, for this reason. And so the bottled version, I think, is the truest version of some styles. And for clean beers like Saison, I will do the f- f- keg fermentation, and uh, then I will do the CO2 or the, the sanitizer CO2 push-out for the re- receiving keg. And I'll open that up, throw my priming sugar in it, close it, purge it like five times, and then close transfer into that, and then use a Blickman beer gun and do the CO2 purge that's on the gun in the bottle, and then use the Blickman beer gun to fill the primed, uncarbonated beer into that, and then cap on that uh, with a CO2 blast of the headspace as well, because I figure that's like the best of both worlds. I'm getting the scrubbing from the uh, the bottling, re- you know, reconditioning process and mitigating oxygen exposure, just getting it into the bottle in the first place. I mean, that's a really good idea if you've got that if you've got that equipment and ability, right? I mean, I think a lot of people are bottling bottle conditioning because they don't have a keg set up or haven't set up a keg. But but that's a really good idea if you're doing, you know, if you're interested in bottle conditioning a beer, like you said, a Hefeweizen or something that might benefit from that bottle condition. Yeah, why not purge the kegs right? or, or the bottles, purge the bottles of CO2? I think that's a great idea and a good way. You know, an, another thing that you're doing, Jordan, I'm sure, um, and, and that I do as well, is we store our beer cold. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's going to change. Uh, that's going to make beer uh, stay fresher for longer. That's not necessarily an oxidation thing, although it may slow down those oxidation reactions. But keeping your beer warm um, unless it's bottle conditioned or bottle conditioning is definitely going to be a problem. So, you know, those are kind of the things that I'm doing. I'm not paying as much attention as you are on the hot side to um, low oxygen, although maybe it's something I might consider. But I am um, trying to do as much as I can to mitigate cold side oxidation at the end. So what else are you doing? Anything else that you're doing to make sure that you have fresh and stable beer? Um, well, a couple things we didn't talk about. One is oxygen scavenging caps. That's something that's been requested that we do an experiment on. So I'd like to check that out in the future. Um, I I heard there was actually a podcast on mitigating oxidation with Colin Kabinsky that came out maybe this week that I just listened to. And he had some good tr- uh, tips. Uh, that was the Beersmith podcast. So uh, that'd be another one to check out. Um, and a couple things that he mentions um, is that those oxygen scavenging ones work uh, for a while until they don't. So maybe there's like a shelf life on them. Uh, but the other thing is he was testing DO and found that there is actually, you know, dissolved oxygen in your sanitizer. And so I, for that reason, I use a low foaming sanitizer, star, uh, five stars, Santa clean, as opposed to the classic home brewer star San, which as we all, you know, they say, don't fear the foam. Well, it turns out maybe you should fear the foam on the cold side because those bubbles have oxygen in them. So a, no, a non foaming sanitizer is a really good way to, uh, um, mitigate that even within that scenario. But what Colin actually recommended is using boiling water, deaerating it for like 10 minutes, then put that in your keg and push out that hot water because, you know, ostensibly that's going to sanit, you know, disinfect the keg. I would probably sanitize it first anyway, but then the, the, the water that you're the liquid you're pushing out has no oxygen in it either. So that would be, I think a fun experiment have one keg that's pre-boiled water that we push out and the other keg that's just hot water of like the same temperature and see if we're getting more oxidative reactions in the one that just had hot water that wasn't pre-boiled. Interesting. Yeah. You know, all these ways to try to, you know, improve the beer on the margins, right? We looked at and talked about fan. We're talking about, you know, taking um, a cold side oxidation seriously, bottle conditioning, storing cold, you know, all of that sort of stuff uh, using, you know, pre-boiled water to fill the kegs because that uh, actually soaks up the uh, oxygen, right? Um, all of these things are consideration and all of them are important to achieving fresh and stable beers. So is there anything else that you wanted to talk about, Jordan? Um, about preserving beer uh, stability and freshness? Like you said, once you finally have this beer in package, just keep it cold. Uh, we know that hot, cold cycles are not good for beer. Warm warm beer uh, does not stay fresh as long. Um, be it a lager or a delicate New England IPA, uh, keeping your beer cold is going to give it the longest shelf life possible. 
Yeah, absolutely. And think about looking at, you know, if um, if I can figure out how to measure fan um, in, in beers, um, you know, uh, I'll do a, a, a feedback on that in a future episode or maybe have a whole nother episode on it um, in the future. But if you can figure out how to manage these things, like managing your fan level, managing oxygen, you can make great beer. So I hope that's a big takeaway that you guys have uh, from, from these episodes. Well, anyway, Jordan and I will be back in two weeks with our next Applying the Science episode. See y'all then. The Brew Lab is a production of Brewlosophy, where they who drink beer think beer. Don't forget to visit Brewlosophy.com to read about our weekly experiments and other brewing adventures and listen to us talk about it on our other show, The Brewlosophy Podcast. Thanks to all of our sponsors and patrons that help make this show possible. If you'd like to receive a reward for helping us do what we do, visit Patreon.com slash Brewlosophy to see how you can do just that. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in the Brew Lab with another guest next week. Until then, think beer.